And then you meet those Christians who say, well, you know, Christianity, it's a private thing. This evangelical brand, this born-again kind of Christianity, this, you know, supercharged Christianity, kind of fanatical, it's a very private thing for me. Well, it's a private decision that you make, but once you make it, it's not a private thing. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 10 of the book of Romans, and we've been looking at the reasons the Hebrew nation rejected their promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, when he first came to earth. As we pick up, we see from Romans 10:17 that salvation comes through believing in and then naming Jesus as Lord of your life. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he looks at exactly what it means to name Jesus as Lord. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord. Now that statement was not to be taken lightly in Paul's day. You see, Christianity in the Roman Empire became a force that needed to be reckoned with. And the Roman Empire said you can believe any religion you wanted. But they, in the process, said, whatever you believe, you cannot disrupt the unity of the empire. And so there came a point in the Roman Empire where Christianity had spread so fast and so far and so wide where millions of people have met Christ, though they were still a minority, God's people have always been a remnant. They required once a year for every Roman citizen to say, Caesar Curios meaning Caesar, Lord. Caesars, of course, claim to be gods in human flesh. Caesar is Lord. And the Christian would shake his head and say, no, Christos, Kyrios, or Aesus, Kyrios. Jesus is Lord or Christ is Lord. And as time progressed, that meant persecution for the believer. And tens of thousands of Christians were bloodied in the Roman Colosseums because they would not say, Caesar Curios, but they said, Christos Curios. Now, the Greek word Curios, Lord, can in some contexts be used just as a term of respect, meaning sir or teacher or reverend teacher, but it is typically used in the Bible as a term of deity. And so when Paul takes the truth in Philippians, he says, a day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, that he is Yahweh. It's very interesting, again, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, the word Yahweh appears about 6,000 times. And in every instance in the Greek translation, it is translated Kyrios, Kyrios, Lord. Jesus is described as Kyrios, Lord. Why? Because he shares the exact same nature, the exact same attributes, authority, power, holiness as God the Father. So if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, is what he is affirming. Now, let me just say parenthetically here. There are some Christians who try to bolster their position on lordship salvation, and this is one of the verses they often use, and they would translate the verse in this way. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord or your master, then you will be saved. In other words, for them, they would say that if you are a true Christian, 
It demands the lordship of Christ. And in many respects, they are absolutely right. But I want you to see that is not what this verse is referring to. It trivializes the meaning of this verse. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus, Yahweh, God, that's the point of the verse. And again, that is affirmed throughout the Septuagint. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Lord. Now, let me just say parenthetically, there are Christians today who say, well, Jesus is my Savior, but He's just not my Lord. He's just not my Master. And they view salvation as a form of fire insurance from hell. I'm going. I may be living with this woman for the last five years, but thank God He's saved me. He may be my Savior. He's just not my Lord. And they are deceived. And it's to such people that Jesus will say, as Matthew 7 affirms, I never knew you. It is impossible and it was absurd for any Christian in the New Testament to think that somehow you could take Jesus as your Savior without taking Him as your Lord, as your Master, as your King, as your authority. Listen, when you come to Christ, you come to Christ for forgiveness, and forgiveness presupposes that you are a sinner, and God has dealt with you that sin is sin. And if you really recognize sin is sin, you recognize it as needing to be forgiven. And if you say, I want it to be forgiven, but I don't really want it to be changed, then you're really not calling it sin. And there are many deceived people in our day. But please understand, that's not what this verse is speaking of. This verse is dealing with the subject that Jesus is Yahweh. And what I find so ironic is that there is a cult in our nation, really across the world, called Jehovah Witnesses. And by the way, you could take in Hebrew, in the Hebrew manuscripts, there are no vowels. The, the reader supplies the vowels in his mind. And there came a point because the Jews lost their ability to speak Hebrew that at one point in their history when they came to these four consonants in English, Y-H-W-H, they were afraid that they might mispronounce it. And they saw the name of God as being so sacred that they didn't want to mispronounce it because you could supply the vowels where it would say Yahweh or you could supply the vowels where it would say Yahovah. But there's a cult in our nation called the Jehovah's Witnesses that deny the deity of Christ, and yet the very term they use is the term of which Jesus is described in this verse. Jesus, kurios. Jesus, Yahweh. Jesus, Jehovah. And so a day is coming, as Paul affirms in Philippians 2, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those that are in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Yahweh, Jehovah. Jesus is Lord. He is God Almighty in human flesh. And the Jews understood this better than many liberal Protestants in our day. They say, well, Jesus didn't really know He was God. That's just something that we made up centuries later. Oh, really? John 5, 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus was not claiming just to be a good teacher or an excellent moral example. He was claiming to be God in human flesh. And for a Jew to pronounce that in the first century would turn his world upside down. 
To say that Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, is Yahweh would have meant to be ostracized. That's what it meant. For a Gentile to say Jesus is Yahweh would have meant to have denied all the other gods in the Roman Empire and to say that there is one true God and ultimately it would mean death for tens of thousands. Now let's keep reading. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's ask a question here. Why does the Bible not say if you believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross, you will be saved? For the simple reason that any infidel can confess that. It's a well-established fact. It's a fact of history. Both in and outside of the Bible, the death, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is recorded. You can believe that without believing in the miracle of the resurrection. So why does God select this one miracle? Why the miracle of resurrection? Because all of the other great truths of salvation are tied up in this one miracle. The resurrection is the capstone miracle of Christianity. When you talk about the resurrection, you're speaking of Christ's incarnation. Because a real, literal, physical, actual person, not a spirit, came out of the grave. There are pastors today, like one on Hilton Head, who said, yes, Jesus rose from the dead. And what he meant by that is he spiritually rose from the dead, but he did not physically come out of the grave. And so they use the language of historic Christianity, but they redefine it, just like the Mormons and JWs. When we talk about the resurrection, we're speaking of his crucifixion. Because you have to die in order to be raised. When you talk about the resurrection, you're speaking of his sinlessness. Because only a sinless person had power over the grave. And if indeed he is sinless and the resurrection demonstrates that, then he is qualified to die for you. The only qualified person. When you speak of his resurrection, you are speaking of his deity. Because as Jesus affirmed, no one is good but God alone. You're speaking of his power because with power he was declared God the Son by the resurrection from the dead, Romans 1.4. When you speak of the resurrection, you are speaking of his authority to judge you because a dead judge cannot hold court. And that's why Paul said in Acts 17 on Mars Hill that he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And when you talk about the resurrection, you are talking about his second coming. Because the one who literally, physically, actually rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Are you listening to me? Say amen if you are. Now, listen, listen. When you talk about the resurrection, you are talking about your soul. Because what you did do with Jesus will determine what God will do with you. Hear me. This word that I'm preaching is near you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart, Paul says. I've preached it there today. But do not miss the truth that this knowledge alone is not enough to save you. It is like a dormant seed that must be responded to. Look at verse 9. He tells us that you must confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Then he says you'll be saved. Now notice the relationship in verse 10 to the heart and the mouth. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. 
Now, will you please notice in verses 9 and 10 that Paul goes back in terms of order between the heart and the mouth. In verse 9, he mentions confessing with your mouth, and then he mentions believing in your heart. Well, here in verse 10, he reverses the order, and he speaks of believing with the heart, and then he speaks, if you will notice, of confessing with the mouth. Is the apostle Paul talking about faith plus the work of confession? In other words, if you believe but you do not confess, you are not saved. And to whom are we confessing? Is your confession to God or is it to man? And then add to the mix in verse 11, there he does not mention confession at all. He simply says the one who simply believes will be saved or unashamed or not disappointed. So let's see if we can sort it out. Look at verse 10 again. For the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness... With a mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. These are two equal statements, and that's clear from the verse, that confessing with the mouth and believing with the heart are considered to be equal. With the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. The ESV, the English Standard Version, puts it this way. With the heart, one believes and is justified. When he says resulting in righteousness, that's what we call justification in the New Testament, where you are declared, not made, but declared holy. You are declared a saint in God's sight. It results in salvation. And with the mouth, he says, he confesses resulting in the same end, salvation. So believing in the heart results in justification or righteousness. Confessing with the mouth results in salvation. It's the same thing. The two are inseparable, resulting in the same exact end. And if you take these two statements and you separate confessing with the mouth and believing in the heart, and you give them independent meanings, you distort the verse. Why do I even bring this up? Because there are entire denominations... The Christian church denomination, though there are some churches that have that name in them and they don't ascribe to the beliefs of the Christian church denomination. Typically, the disciples of Christ and almost always the church of Christ, when you ask them, how is someone saved? They say, repent, believe, confess, and be baptized. And they make confession part of the plan of salvation. That's the Galatian era. That's what the Judaizers did, where they came in and they said, well, it's not enough to believe in Jesus. You have to do this one work on top of it. And Paul calls that a different gospel. Then they make confession a work, and they make salvation a work righteousness. And that's not what this text is teaching. Put out next to verse 10, this verse, if you would, 2 Corinthians 4.13. 2 Corinthians 4.13. Let me read it to you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, Paul said, I believed, therefore I spoke, quoting the Old Testament. And then he affirms what the Old Testament says, we also believe, therefore we also speak. In other words, you cannot separate the heart from the mouth, for the Lord Jesus again said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the reason I said here in my outline point that announcing God's righteousness is salvation is because confession and belief are flip sides of the same coin in the New Testament. The two are inseparable. They are one. Think about this. On the one hand, of course, if you have confession without genuine belief, and you can have that sometimes, then all you have is a hypocrite. All you have is a a self-deceived person. And there are people who 
for the ages have come down in front of evangelistic crusades and churches and they've made, quote unquote, a confession of faith, but it has never touched the human heart. On the other hand, if you have a supposed belief, someone says, I'm saved. Oh, I've received Jesus as my Lord. They have a supposed belief without confession. Then you have cowardice. And that is not a mark of genuine conversion that the Spirit of God initially produces in a man who is saved. Certainly there are people who have confessed Christ, but who have never believed. James, his whole epistle deals with such people. Confession without genuine faith is vain, but likewise faith, genuine faith without confession is not authentic faith. But do not make this what the church of Christ makes this and make some additional work on top of what Jesus did in order to be saved. So some guy said, well, I received, prayed the sinner's prayer during the week, but I wasn't saved until I came down front and confessed Jesus as Lord. And then they would add, then when you're baptized, that's nonsense. That is a works righteousness that is muddying the simple, plain plan of salvation. And so to teach anything, on top of what Jesus did as a way of salvation is to distort the Bible. So again, what precisely does the inner man believe? And what precisely does the outer man confirm that brings this salvation? Two simple truths mentioned here in verse 9. Number one, Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God in human flesh. And number two that he has been raised from the dead, that he is not a dead Savior who can save no one, but he is the risen Savior who has conquered the grave and melted the clutches of sin. And if you believe that, then God says you're saved. Now, every week we give an invitation here, and I'll do the same. I'll extend an invitation in just a few minutes. And suppose some man comes down here. He says, Pastor, I'd like to be saved today. I understood what Jesus did for me. I understood that it's by grace and not by works and only by his death and resurrection, the gospel, that I can be saved. And I say, okay, well, let me lead you in prayer. And I say, did you mean what you prayed? Oh, yes, pastor, as much as I meant it, I I know my heart, I meant it. Well, are you saved? And he says, well, um, I'm not not sure. I don't feel any different. Um, No, I don't think I am. Is he saved? No, he is not. Why? Because he did not take God at his word. He did not believe what God said. And if you do not believe what God said, and that's the essence of faith according to Hebrews 11, then you're saying, God, you cannot do what you promised. You're weak, you're impotent. Or you're saying, God, you will not do what you promised, meaning that you are, in essence, immoral. And so because the man does not confess, the word confess, homo legeo, homo, we get our word homosexual, homo sapien, it means the same, legeo, to say, when a man confesses his sin, he says the same thing God says about sin. Here, when you confess Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, you're saying what God said, and when you say what God says, God in essence says, amen. It's right. But when a man says, no, I'm not saved, God says, Amen. In essence, he's not saved. But again, if someone else comes down, praise the sinner's prayer, did you mean it? I meant it. Well, are you saved? Absolutely. I have trusted in the Lord Jesus. I put my total dependence on him. Then God says, amen to him, he is saved. Because you have said what God has said, and it shows that you have a genuine heart because the mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart. So look at verse 11, and we'll conclude. For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him 
will not be disappointed. Notice again an Old Testament quote. Where's it from? Don't look at me. Look into your Bibles. Yeah, Isaiah 28, 16. He who believes in Him will not be disappointed. Now, that word disappointed is a colorful Greek word. And if you have the NAS with footnotes, you will go out into the margin and it will give you a literal rendering. It's a little wooden, but it's actually a little fuller. He who believes in Him literally will not be put to shame. That's what it says. Now, he's quoting the Septuagint. If you go back and you read the Hebrew text, which you can do by just reading Isaiah 28, 16, what does it say in Hebrew? Let me read it to you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. Speaking of Messiah, he who believes in it, this cornerstone, will not be in a hurry. Now, remember, the Holy Spirit inspired the whole of the Bible. He inspired every language of the Bible, the Hebrew, the Aramaic, and the Greek in which the Scriptures are written. And here we learn that this Greek word can be translated disappointed in Romans 10, or literally not be put to shame, or as in the Hebrew Bible, will not be in a hurry. You know, I've been in a restaurant before sharing Christ. I led a guy to Christ in Applebee's who was three feet from the bar. And he was a regular there, not in the seat next to the bar, but at the bar. And I know as I was sharing the gospel, I have a loud voice, you know, and I think probably half the restaurant hears me sometimes, my wife tells me. And anyway, I'm sharing with him, and he's kind of looking around, and he's in a hurry. Like, what's going to happen? He was a little uneasy. Thank God he trusted the Lord that day, prayed out loud right next to that bar table. I was so thrilled. But some people are in a hurry to get away. Or some people are kind of ashamed. You know, you, you go to a restaurant with your pagan friend and you say, oh, let me ask the blessing. And you bow your head and he's looking around like, oh, no one's seeing me with this religious fanatic. They're ashamed. They're in a hurry to get away. Listen, I'm not ashamed. I'm not in a hurry. And then you meet those Christians who say, well, you know... Christianity, it's a private thing. This evangelical brand, this born-again kind of Christianity, this you know, supercharged Christianity, kind of fanatical, it's a very private thing for me. Well, it's a private decision that you make, but once you make it, it's not a private thing. For what is a man profited, Jesus said, if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits his, himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. That's precisely what Paul is saying. An inward belief always results in an outward confession because the heart and the tongue are hooked together in the Bible. He who believes in him will not be put to shame. He'll not be in a hurry. He'll not be disappointed. You know, I've preached hundreds and hundreds of funerals, I think over 500 in the last 35 years. And I've prayed with a lot of our people right at their deathbed in their homes or in the hospital. And I've never, ever, ever had a single believer tell me, I'm sorry I wasted my life serving Jesus Christ. I, I, I look back at my life and I realize that I invested my life in an empty cause. Never had ever a single believer tell me that. Now, I've had many Christians say to me, you know, I'm ashamed of the way I lived for Christ. And if I could do it all over again, I would do it differently. I would have invested more time in the kingdom of God. 
What I'm trying to say here is that if you are a true Christian, you'll not be ashamed. You'll not be disappointed of Christ. You may be ashamed of it in yourself, but you won't be disappointed in Him. You say, Pastor, you think God would accept me? What if I'm not one of His elect? Let me tell you, the elect of the whosoever will and the non-elect of the whosoever won't. You say, well, do I need a special feeling in order to be saved? God says, confess Jesus as Yahweh and as the one who was raised from the dead. That means the one who died, who was buried, who was raised because the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection defined in 1 Corinthians 15 is the power of God to save you. Listen, the word is in your mouth. It's in your heart today. But it's like a dormant seed and you must respond as an act of the will. And if you will say today, Lord Jesus, save me. I cast myself totally on you and I trust you and believe you by your work to save me, then he will do it. Let's bow in prayer. I want to help someone to do that right now. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Please, no one leaving unless it's an absolute emergency. If you are not absolutely sure that heaven is your home, then would you pray this prayer, taking God at His word and believing what He said, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I am not worthy of heaven, but I thank you that you left heaven and became a man, that you took my wrath on your cross, and after you were buried, you were raised from the dead, declaring to me and to everyone else that you are Yahweh, Lord. And so today, I trust you to save me. Lord Jesus, save me. And now I will confess today with my mouth what I've done in my heart. Now, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, maybe today you are already a believer. You came in here as a born-again believer. You're an active member of this church, but you haven't led anyone to Christ in a long, long time. Why don't you ask God to change that? Some of you heard this passage today and you said, I know that passage. I could preach it. And God wants you to apply it. He, he wrote this passage to save people, to equip us to do the work of the ministry. Ask God to make it real in your life. Ask Him to use these verses as you witness to people. Father, a day is coming. We recognize it. When darkness will overwhelm this world, when the hour of salvation will be forever lost. Help us not to be foolish, wasting our time and the vain appetites of this world, but help us to seek first Your kingdom and Your righteousness above all else. Help us to be faithful carriers of the Word of God. Help us to preach the Word this week into people's hearts and into people's mouths that they might have the opportunity to respond. That when we meet our Savior, we will not be ashamed of ourselves, but He will be able to say to us, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for His name's sake. Amen. To listen again to today's message entitled, Close But Not Close Enough, use the Search the Scriptures app, available for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
And if you would like a CD or DVD copy, call us at 877-787-7478. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll look at Rescuing the Perishing, part of our ongoing study in the Book of Romans. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. 